our new bestie has changed how we track our investments. Why have over 400,000 investors chosen ShareSite? It's simple. This online investment dashboard for your investment portfolio supports over 500,000 stocks, ETFs, and funds, plus integrated with more than 200 platforms, ensures your entire investment portfolio is organized and accessible in one place. Move beyond the limited insights from brokerage statements. ShareSite offers a comprehensive view of your financial performance, including analyzed reports, dividend gains, and the impact of currency fluctuations, all through intuitive graphs and visualizations. But here's the best part. For the investee besties out there, ShareSite is offering a special deal. Save four months when you purchase an annual premium plan. It's time to dive deep into performance metrics, streamline tax reporting, and share your portfolio with ease. Join the link in the episode description to sign up to ShareSite now and transform your investment experience. Welcome to Girls That Invest. You're joined today by your host, Simi Sonia, two millennial investors who are here to help you learn about all things investing and personal finance. Today, we have got a super exciting episode ahead where we chat to the CEO of the Financial Markets Authority here in New Zealand, Samantha Barris. You know, when it came to growing up and money mindset, you did, you kind of speaking to us earlier about what that meant and how things were growing up. Has your money mindset changed since then? No, it hasn't. And I think the, I think sort of, I think the point that was quite grounding for me as a child was when my parents gave me pocket money that was more than others got. They also said, we're giving you more pocket money you've got because you need to make sure that you don't just spend it on sweets and chocolate and comics. You need to use the extra money to save to buy your own school stationery, to pay for your school trip. That was quite a profound experience for me because at quite an early age, it meant that I had to be thinking about a budget. And we had these squirrel savings accounts from the post office savings bank, I think it was then. And I had to learn to put a chunk of that money aside every week in a bank account. And it took me a while to get it right. So the first time I got all this pocket money, I went out and actually did spend all on chocolate and sweets. Uh, But then I had to borrow some money from my parents to pay for the school books and and things I needed. What that's taught me, because at various points in my life, I've had to kind of really work my income to make sure that I could cover all my costs and think about not just saving for a deposit for a house, but um, my retirement. What that's kind of left me with is some really strong financial resilience skills when it comes to budgeting, saving, investing, making sure that I'm kind of making really good decisions today on how I spend my money. I think I, from, from that age, I think I've just lived in fear of chaos in my financial life. You know, having had that experience of not being of running out of money when it came to buying my school books and things like that, it's kind of a mindset of actually quite a conservative approach to my own finances, always making sure that I've got enough to get me to get me through enough a rainy day that, you know, that that's really stood with me to this day, actually. That's so interesting. Would you say that looking back now, you know, you're probably in, in a slightly different financial position since when you were a child. Do you look back at that experience and kind of go, wow, like, that was a whole different world. And do you kind of see it as, you know what, that made me who I am today and I don't have any regrets? 
Oh, it actually made me who I am today. I mean, obviously, you know, in my role, I'm more, you know, I'm more financially secure. You know, I've been lucky, been able to uh, secure jobs that have meant that I can have, you know, good financial security. I, it all gets back to that experience I had as a child, because what was the motivation for me to be qualified to have a career were two things, really. One was I wanted to enjoy my life and I wanted to, and by that, by enjoying my life, I meant I wanted to be able to have a job that was really interesting because one of the many jobs I did was working at Countdown Supermarket and I love Countdown. I, I go shopping now in Countdown, but it was really boring working at the checkout. Those hours you took clock by when I, you know, go really slowly when I was 16, 17. I remember thinking, actually, I want to have a job where I wake up in the morning. I'm really excited to go to it. And at the end of the day, I think, oh my gosh, the day's gone so quickly. I wish I could have the morning back again. But the second thing, and it's driven me uh, throughout my life has been I do not want to be financially insecure. And so that drove, that was an additional driver to me, a strong driver for me to do well at school, go to university, get well qualified, get a good job so that I did not have the experience of not having enough money. Because, <laughs> you know, the first year we lived in New Zealand as a child, we couldn't afford furniture or anything. So we had mattresses on the floor in the house my parents bought. So when you have that experience, I think it stays with you. Uh, well, for me, it certainly has. And it's been a real driver, a real personal driver for me. Honestly, it's so interesting hearing someone's background and where they come from and, and how things have changed and grown with them. And so sort of moving, you know, a couple of years ahead, things have gone gone well. What took you into the mindset of wanting to pursue, you know, maybe a, a career in commerce or in finance? I can't imagine that, you know, it was a very popular option at your time when you were in university. So how did that come about? Oh, it's a great, because actually when you, when I was a little girl growing up, I wanted to be an actress or an astronaut or kind of all the things that we, we often, you know, we, that we, we dream about. But I was really interested in politics as a teenager uh, and going, you know, when I was doing, you know, it, back then we had UE and bursary. Decision that I made was that I was initially thinking I'd want to, I'd want to study political science at university. But I realized that what I was interested in was the politics of how you create growth. You know, how do economies work? How do economies, both domestic economies and the world economy, how do they grow so that you can feed, clothe, house everyone, you know, protect the planet, provide uh, fun things for people, you know, the holidays that people, you know, the thing, the holidays that so people want, good education, good health system. And that comes down to, can you afford it? You know, can your economy afford it? And that drove me to study economics. And that was behind my decision to study economics at Canterbury. And that interest kind of remains with me today. I mean, the one of the reasons I, you know, I had my first five years of my career at the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. And what, I was absolutely delighted to, you know, get get into the graduate there. And again, it was a time of, you know, extraordinary high inflation. I mean, we've got rising inflation at the moment, but I started out my career as an economist in finance, working for a central bank that was trying to bring inflation down when it was 23, 24%. And that was having a real impact, you know, the, you know, a real impact on people's lives. And I was energized by being able to be a part of the team working to bring it down and stabilize the economy. Did you face 
any kind of backlash or, or trouble? You, um, you know, said that you wanted to go into this field or was that not really an issue that you faced? None at all. I mean, there were generally not very many women who were studying economics and at the time, most of the economists at the Reserve Bank, they were mainly, not totally, but they were mainly, mainly men. But no, no backlash at all. I think if, if anything, I mean, both my parents were really proud. They felt invested in the, in my education. The main backlash I had was my dad and I used to have all these profoundly strong economic arguments because I was really pro all the economic reforms that were happening in the late 1980s in New Zealand. And my dad was quite a traditional socialist. And he and I used to have all these econo- you know, fierce economic and political debates. But that wasn't a backlash. That was just a wonderful part of the family I was part of. I mean, I, I love to hear that. Like, I love that it's more of a positive experience. And I think a lot of people might have a misconception or a misunderstanding that, you know, it's um, just a boys club and, and there's no space for women and you really have to crawl and fight your way in. But I mean, at least from your experience, it doesn't sound like that was everyone's experience. No, it wasn't. And and actually, I did make deliberate. So I went to, I made a deliberate decision to go and work in a body, a central bank. And then I was sort of moved, moved into regulation in the financial services sector. I made deliberate decisions to choose bodies that had objectives of furthering the public interest. And because I knew that friends of mine who were working for banks and investment banks when were having less happy experiences than the ones I had you know there there was some sexism was rife it was hard to get ahead i think that in making a choice to uh work for a body that was promoting public interest you know you know societal outcomes i was automatically in an environment that was easier as a, even though there weren't that many women in it and there were you know many of the familiar issues over breaking through glass ceilings and, and things like that the sense of the some of the toxic because there were toxic environments in the time in the 80s in the 90s going forward into this millennium unfortunately some very toxic environments for women to be working in and i made a deliberate decision to just not get into that game if you had a piece of advice for women that are maybe starting out, they've just begun their careers in finance or in commerce, and they are scared of the possibility of facing potential future challenges, you know, by being a woman, maybe some unconscious bias, perhaps, what would your advice be to them, you know, in 2022? You know, some things just don't change. You know, I look at my own daughter now, she's in her mid-20s. You know, women, we always have a tendency to doubt ourselves, to think that, you know, to doubt ourselves and to be concerned that we always have to justify why we are in the position that we are in it's just important to go for it but i do ha- i think there's some when i when i look back at it there are things that have been important that i think you know stand the test of time one of them which might be a bit controversial is a key piece of career advice for women is actually a personal piece of advice uh, which is if you decide that you want to have children and not all women want to have children choose the partner that you are going to have your children with really carefully, whether that's a woman or a man, if the significant other in your life is a a woman or a man, choose it really carefully. If you want to have children, you want to be a mother and have a career at the same time, partnering with the right person makes all the difference. 
because a career in the financial sector can be time consuming, it can be exhausting. And when you make the choice that you want to do both, then you need to be able to be doing that with someone who's going to be really sharing the burden with you, you know, jointly doing the work to help, help raise children and, and give them give them what they need. The second is I didn't wake up one day and become a chief executive. I didn't wake up one day and say, oh, I want to become, you know, I, I want to become a chief executive. You know, you have, I've, you know, like everyone, I've had the jobs I've gone for that I haven't got that I really wanted to get. And if you want to progress, you need to be cool with not always getting things the way you want them when you want them. So to be flexible over your routes through. Because actually my route through to becoming chief executive of financial services regulator, because this is the second time I've done this job, turned up quite unexpectedly when I was approached to apply for a senior executive role in legal services regulation in the UK. That was the opening for my senior executive career. But if I'd been quite if I'd been actually, no, I want to have a senior executive role in financial services regulation and I'm going to wait till that role comes along, I would probably not be here in New Zealand heading up the Financial Markets Authority. And then there's the usual bits of advice over finding people who are going to mentor you, who are going to champion you, who are going to give you give you advice, give you opportunities. And that's not necessarily, I mean, my experience, that's never been through formal mentorship programs. That's just been finding people who I admire, watching the way that they run a board or they run an organization and kind of getting to know them and looking for opportunities to learn from them. So it's about being flexible and seeing that actually there's not just one route to where you want to go to. It can be, you know, there can be a variety of, of ways through. Now to move on to some nosy questions about your personal investing. First of all, where did your journey start? Put my investing into two categories until quite recently. One has been saving for my retirement, which I've been doing more or less since I started my career. And I do that through various forms of collective uh, investment schemes. I rely very heavily. I've got great financial advisor in the UK. I rely very heavily on him to sort of support me when we have like an annual check-in and sometimes it's more often than that to say, you know, which which of the schemes that are going to work, where is my risk appetite? You know, we have so we have some great questions around, you know, when when do we when do I think I'm going to retire and what kind of risk appetite or risk profile do I want to take with my investments balance between equity and debt, but even, you know, within those within those portfolios. I'm really busy. I don't have the time to pick stocks, you know, I, I, I don't have the time to do that. So I've got a mixture of passive and active funds that kind of fit, you know, fit with my risk profile, but I don't do it myself. I don't make those decisions myself. I don't have enough time in the day to be able to do that properly. So a big tip for me has been to find the right financial advisor. And I knew he was the right financial advisor when I didn't have any life insurance at the time. And I said, what do you think I ought to do about life insurance? And he could have, you know, if he, if he was, if he was interested in commission and things like that, he could have kind of offered me product. And he said, actually, Samantha, you don't need life insurance now. You've got enough built up in your pension pot. You own your house without a mortgage and your kids are 
much less dependent on you. So he said, you're going to be leaving them a lot anyway. So you just do not need a straight life insurance policy. He said, it's just not a good use. He said, I'll find you one if you'd like one, but you just don't need one now at this. He said, there's other insurances you probably need, but you don't, this is something you don't need. And that was, that was a really helpful conversation. The other investment I've done from the word go was for each of my kids when they were born, I started, I did a kind of mixture of investing for them. And again, nothing very exciting because I haven't had the time to do it, but kind of a mixture of government debt and collective investment scheme equity investments. And so mainly, mainly those collective investments have been around equity. I didn't have much money. I think I started off with my daughter, Emily, when she was born, I put, I think it was 20 pounds a month. I started saving and I was gradually able and I started that with the boys as as my two boys when when they were born as well but I just made sure I did it it was I never felt you know I always thought if I just put it straight you know in, into investing for them saving and investing for them it doesn't feel like very much but it might grow up to be you know over the time it might build to be you know quite a good thing and you know when parents and friends gave the kids money, you know, when they were three. I mean, there's only so many teddy bears you can get a three-year-old. Rather than buying them lots of things, I'd encourage people, I'd encourage friends and relatives to give me money that I'd put into their investments for them. And it worked out really well because it's not a fortune at all, but all three of my children, because I squirreled away on a really regular basis, even when I was on a very tight income, I made sure that each month I was putting something away for each of the three kids. They've now got these chunks of money and the funny, actually, we're having this really interesting discussion at the moment. They don't want me to let them have it because they're scared they're going to spend it. So they've, they've, all, <laughs> they've all said to me, because I, when I came out here, I said to them, look, you guys are going to have to take over these investments I've got for you. And um, why don't you kind of, you know, why don't I introduce you to my financial advisor? And they're all saying, oh, no, can you, because <laughs> if you give it to us, we might buy it on a car, we might spend it on a car or a motorbike or, or, or some such thing. So it's quite interesting. But, you know, when they need it, you know, it will help them towards you know, buying, you know, a deposit for a house or, or some such thing. And so that's a big, you know, it's a, I'm so pleased I did it because what would have I spent that 20 pounds on? It might have been a kind of, you know, uh, it, it might have gone towards, you know, a beer or I might have got, you know, an extra large chicken or something, you know, I, it would have just gone. It would have just disappeared. And instead, I've been putting it away and it's grown into something that's actually meaningful for my kids. <laughs> I love that they're like, no, please don't give me that responsibility. It definitely sounds like something I would say to my parents. But you spoke a little bit about having a financial advisor. This is something that we get asked about a lot, how you actually pick a financial advisor. Do you have any tips for those who are on the hunt for one? I spoke to three advisors and then went, went with him. It was around qualifications. The thing that was very important to me was that he was able to be completely objective so that he took, I could feel with him that he was really taking the time to get to know me, where I was at with my stage of life, that he did not gain financially, you know, the way that he is remunerated through me is completely separate to the investments and, and things that I do. And that was sort of clicked with him. I thought, yes, this is someone who I can I can rely on. But it was it was the qualifications, it was the track record of not just him, but the firm that he was a part of. I kind of went through quite a lot of probing questions over for me the most important question is how do you make your money? <laughs> you know, how do you because you you're earning a living from this and I need to make sure that your need to earn a living from this doesn't cut across your ability to give me independent advice that meets my needs. 
And the second thing is I also want to know that you you're qualified to do it. You know, you, you've got the relevant qualifications that are, that are needed for this role. So one of my favorite questions to ask people is, of course, about books. Do you have any books that have helped you throughout your career that you can recommend to our listeners? So I'm not a self-help book person. Don't have a Bible that I can say, oh yeah, no, this is this is the book I read. I think in terms of my personal development in, in books, what I have found more useful and interesting has been to read biographies and autobiographies of people, not just politicians, but people who have overcome adversity, who have made something of their lives, who I admire. And also people I might not even agree with, but just people who have achieved success or have needed to deliver things. And that's the interesting in and of themselves. But also I find that you learn a lot over how to deal with difficult circumstances. So that is that the Barack Obama one, Cherie Blair, Tony Blair's wife, wrote a great book about speaking for herself because actually she came from a very impoverished, difficult family background in Liverpool and went on to become an eminent barrister, a leading barrister, and also just happened to be married to Tony Blair at the same time. And, you know, had had all sorts of slings and arrows kind of pointed in her direction. And that was, you know, I learned a lot from reading that book, that how did she manage with all the hurdles and the, all, all the challenges that she faced? In terms of self-development, I definitely, I definitely go down the biographies, autobiography route, and still do. The other kind of self-development in terms of building the skills to be able to do the job that I now do is, I would look at people who. I was working with who would cope with difficult circumstances really well. There was a great CEO at the Solicitors Regulation Authority called Anthony Townsend, and his ability to deal at the board table or in any other circumstance with left field difficult issues, difficult circumstances. I just something would happen that was unexpected and I'd sit back and I think, I have absolutely no idea, Anthony, how you are going to deal with this. And then I'd sit back and I'd watch how he dealt with it. And I thought, ah, that's how you deal with that particular situation. And I was kind of, so it, there are all, for me, there hasn't been a, you know, a book, you know, or a school of thinking. It's just been a combination of things that I've been able to use to build my experience and understanding of, of things. For business owners, every transaction is more than just a swipe of the card. It's the culmination of your hard work, dedication and commitment to your customers. That's why I'm excited to share with you a game-changing solution that's simplifying the way businesses like yours accept payments. Introducing Tap to Pay on iPhone powered by Stripe. Contactless payments has never been easier. You can seamlessly accept contactless payments directly from your iPhone and the best part, there's no additional hardware required. Think about it. From local pop-ups to global retailers, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe cater to businesses of all sizes, empowering them to accept payments right from their iPhones. It's a game changer for businesses looking to scale quickly and stay flexible with quick setup that takes minutes, not days. So how can tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe benefit your business? It's simple. Increased revenue, expanded reach and enhanced customer experience. It's a win-win-win. To learn more about how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can transform your business, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone today. 
Nice. I've actually been wanting to get into autobiographies for a bit. So thank you for some recommendations. Alrighty, to wrap up, did you have any last career tips that you would want to give to our audience? Make sure that you're doing a job that you want to do. Go for something that you're going to enjoy doing. If you're finding that difficult to get, go for something that's going to kind of get you sort of partway along. I mean, at the moment, the labor market's really tight. So there's a lot of choices out there for people starting their career. So enjoy enjoying a job is really good. It seems really obvious, isn't it? Maybe I should write a guru book about it. But if people enjoy doing their jobs, they happen to do them really well. That's a, you know, find a job that you enjoy because you have to be authentic to yourself. You can't pretend to like doing something that you can't do. The second is to don't do yourself down. It's so frustrating because we did exactly the same thing when we were starting out. We think, oh, you know, I can't go for that job because someone else will go for it. They'll know someone who that they who they want for the role or I don't really meet all the qualifications so I'm not going to put an application in. Just go for it. Stop yourself from doing it. Say, actually, no, I'm talking myself down. I'm sabotaging my own career because yes, you will not get but you know, you will have to put in lots of applications potentially, but just keep doing it. The third tip, don't feel that you have to be perfect all the time. When you're starting a job, ask ask for help. When you're getting into a job, it's wonderful. You know, I love it. You know, today in this role, I've got people who are early in early in their careers. And I I love it when they say, Sam, can you help me with this or can you give me your thought on on that? Because it's we like being asked for help or support or input to to the work that we're doing. It's a pretty sad person that's going to turn you down. But also you can learn and also when you're asking other people in the work, you know, asking for help, you're also getting known to them and they can kind of also, you know, it's part of that kind of networking that you can do to kind of be noticed and be, um, have an opportunity to get the, to get the next job. Thank you so much again to Samantha for coming on. We definitely have to have you on again soon. And as always to finish off with our disclaimer, Girls That Invest does not provide personalized investing advice for your individual needs. We are not financial advisors. The advice from Girls That Invest exists for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment or financial decision. Advice from Girls That Invest is general in nature and does not consider individual circumstances. Always do your research and please use your due diligence. Alrighty, till next time team. Bye.